0: When it rains, it pours through my living room windows, my kids' window. The mold is deep inside of the walls and people
1: are extremely sick. Years later, they still have not repaired a lot of these homes.
2: I'm Chriselle Pillay. Rose Adieta and I are your hosts for But Next Time, a podcast about the ways people tap into their resilience and organizing strength when catastrophe hits.
3: I'm Rose. Chrishell and I met through a network of grassroots advocates working on issues of racial justice, housing, and land. For years, she and I have been on the front lines of crises that have threatened our communities in Texas and California.
4: Disaster recovery is who gets to belong, who gets to remain, who gets to survive this disaster, and who gets to survive the next disaster, and how they get to survive
2: it. Over the course of this series, we'll meet activists and organizers committed to building justice and a sustainable future, even as they deal with wildfires, earthquakes, flooding, and the pandemic.
1: There's never a time where you can't
3: use your voice. Your voice is your freedom. You're listening to But Next Time. In our previous episodes, we learned about how communities in Northern California had responded to climate-fuel wildfires and the pandemic, in Sonoma County's wine country, and in my neighborhood in San Francisco's Mission District. Now we're headed to Texas, where Chrishell has lived most of her life.
2: After Hurricane Harvey in 2017, my family moved from the suburbs to our old neighborhood, Cashmere Gardens, in Northeast Houston. It's historically African-American, and honestly, many have given up on the place. We moved into my aunt's home to keep it in the family, but once we were there, I couldn't ignore all the problems I confronted when I walked out my front door. Hurricane Harvey was a huge storm. It rained hard for three days straight, and it also flooded a third of the city. And while affluent parts of the city were starting to bounce back, my neighbors still had to deal with mold in their walls and leaky roofs. I now lead an organization that addresses equity in disaster recovery. And we focus on Houston, but I've become so connected with people across the country who are working on these issues. Hi. Hi. What? Hello? Okay. In October 2019, I helped lead a tour of Houston for affordable housing advocates from around the country. But we are no stranger to disaster. We've used many of our lessons that we've learned from past disasters to try to really shift the way in which we recover. We have all had to confront discrimination in the disaster recovery process that leaves people with fewer resources and much worse off than their wealthier neighbors. Zoe Middleton organized the tour.
4: So I'm the Southeast Texas and Houston co-director for Texas Housers, and we're a civil rights organization that does civil rights by doing fair housing and equitable disaster recovery.
3: The passengers on this tour included advocates from Texas, Puerto Rico, Florida, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C., all connected to the National Low Income Housing Coalition.
2: Several organizations after the storm waters went down, came together and said, okay, how can we work together this time? Why don't we really make an effort to work more comprehensively and more strategically as opposed to us all working in our little areas? Hello,
1: everyone. My name is Erica Bowman. I am the community organizer with Texas Housers. This apartment complex that's across the street is called Carpentry. It is a project-based Section 8 property that we've been working with. They have a natural disaster every time it rains in their home. It pours constantly.
3: Erica has spent countless hours getting to know the families in this sprawling cluster of two-story buildings. When she describes Copper Tree as a Section 8 property, she's saying that the federal government helps provide affordable housing for these families, mostly single moms with children. The corporate owners receive millions from the government to accept Section 8 vouchers from the renters. The owners of this old development from the 1970s get market rate. The federal government pays the difference between that and what the tenants can
4: pay. Copper Tree doesn't rise to the level of national attention or even local media attention, or it's a chronic, slow-moving disaster. conditions here
3: are really
1: bad. The mold is deep inside of the walls. It's very evident when you walk into these homes that this mold is creating a lot of very, very serious illnesses inside of this apartment complex.
2: Through the Um, windows of the tour bus, we could see that the Copper Tree development occupies several blocks there are more than 300 apartments. And driving through, I remember seeing one burnt out building left abandoned. Others were just falling apart with mold and water damage. Erica knows more intimately about life inside this complex for the families here.
1: This is Jamie. She has started to help organize the women that are in this apartment complex. I'm gonna let her talk a little bit about some of the things that she's faced living on this property.
0: Hello, I'm Jamie, I'm a full-time student, full-time employee, full-time mom of five. Um, I moved to Copper Tree in 2011. It didn't rain, it poured like the walls would peel. So every couple of months they have to put new sheetrock, they don't kill the mold. They move
1: me on And instead of ripping and taking things out, they leave the same exact carpet that's been there forever. They paint over mold, over leaks, and then within days you start to see the same mold.
0: My three babies that live with me, two of them have severe asthma. I go through a box of albuterol per child per month, and that's in a good month. They can't breathe. I called the office. They tell me they're gonna come look at it, and a year later, no, nothing. They move me to another-
1: Like a lot of these women who don't have any type of rent or insurance, she lost a lot of her furniture. She lost a lot of the clothes.
4: It's really important that we understand who is able to recover as a renter, and it's not low-income renters. Fair housing wage in in Houston is something around $17 an hour to be able to afford one-bedroom apartment. They have no place to go, or they're forced into places that are of especially substandard housing stock.
0: We have sewage water. Literally, right now, if you stand right here in the parking lot, you can smell our complex. Everything just smells like sewage. Kids can't go out and play because of the sewage water, which is also seeping in through the floors. I know of two residents
2: that have moved. Jamie is part of a campaign called 12 Moms, one result of tenant organizing in Southeast Texas. The moms have sued the government, HUD to be exact, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, because they have failed to maintain property or cancel contracts with landlords who won't make repairs. 12 Moms is a fair
4: housing campaign that seeks to put the people that are actually experiencing the insufficient and unsafe housing conditions and at the forefront of the campaigns where they are able to ask for the solutions that they want. Jamie, she still is trying to figure out ways
1: of how not only can she get her family out of there, but how she can get others. Her being part of this 12 Moms campaign started to open her eyes as as how the system works and what needs to be done.
4: Tenants are asking for vouchers to be able to
2: move to a safer area. Zoe explained, it's hard to look for housing with a HUD voucher, especially where we live. The state of Texas
4: has said that voucher holders can be discriminated against because they're not under the Fair Housing Act a a protected class. If a landlord does not want to have a voucher holder, they can simply say no, and it's because of how you pay your rent. We're kind of the, the Wild West in terms of our respect for capital, but not human
2: life. There's like this cycle when it comes to, you know, property owner, landlord, management, HUD it leaves the tenant just totally out of it. Mm -hmm. But the tenant is the one that's supposed to be served. These developments should not exist solely as commodities that Mm -hmm. are just revenue generating machines. And that's in essence what they've become.
4: HUD could do so much differently. (laughs) Uh, I think it won't come as a surprise to anyone, but I think that. First, they could refuse to regrant to property owners that have low inspection scores. HUD could also be futuristic by looking at where floodplains lie. There are hundreds of thousands of tenants in project-based Section 8 housing that live at risk of serious flooding, and HUD could refuse to subsidize citing people in the floodplain.
1: The ultimate win would have been HUD coming in and giving these vouchers to the women, letting them know, we do see that you are living in hazardous conditions. Obviously, management isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so we are now issuing vouchers for opportunity to find housing in other areas. That's not what happened.
2: Erica said HUD passed the responsibility onto the local housing authority that, in turn, gave vouchers to some families in the same area. All of those renters had to find apartments within a very short time without any financial help from government agencies.
1: HUD, they kind of just put their hands up
2: and let them kind of fend for themselves. A nationwide study from 2019 revealed that about 450,000 renter households in public housing or privately owned subsidized housing are in floodplains. This situation can only get worse with climate change.
0: So if there's anybody in here today that can speak for us and help us get a little further with our voice, please, we're begging you. Some of us need help to help ourselves. Thank you.
4: So Jamie's super brave. I think anyone that decides to participate in organizing work in a state like Texas on an issue that is so underprotected, like tenants' rights are in, in Texas, is is doing something really brave because you'll hear stories of people being threatened to be evicted, they'll get a comment that's like, are you not gonna cause any trouble, are you?
1: I asked a couple of the tenants who are wanting to express themselves to hang SOS little white rags of stating, like, this is extreme emergency. I just wanted you to just get a visual of that and feel the voices of those families that are in these apartments and they're living the way that they're living. And hopefully it'll get the attention of people because we're embarrassing the city council (laughs) mayor. You know, they got these flags in their district that's flying. Obviously you guys aren't doing something that you're supposed to be doing. You need to pay attention to that.
2: Erica described the day she helped titted families put up the flags. One very curious little girl asked what she was doing. I was super excited to tell her
1: (laughs) because she was so eager. So I was like, these are the voices of the people who live here. This is saying that in my apartment, I have mold. And she goes, I have mold. And I was like, you do? And she's like, yeah, I have mold. This is saying water is coming from my ceiling. Water's coming from my ceiling. (laughs) This is telling people, like, this is not fair, that this is how my house looks, and something needs to be done about it. He's smiling like, okay, I'm getting it. I get what you're saying. Always telling them kids, like, when you see something that's not right? Don't accept it. There's never a time where you can't use your voice. Your voice is your freedom.
2: In our final episode, we'll learn about the outcomes of the lawsuit brought by the moms in Carpentry. Their efforts are a step toward holding the federal government responsible for safe, sanitary, and dignified living conditions. A few months after we gathered in Houston, Zoe and I and colleagues from other cities traveled together to Puerto Rico. An environmental grant makers group had invited us to their conference to speak together on a panel about what our organizations have learned about disaster recovery. Hello, my name is Kashana Hill. I'm executive director of the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center based in New Orleans. Um, I come to know Kashana Hill through our work on fair housing in the South. So I am, I'm missing
3: Mardi Gras to be here with you all.
2: <laughs> and I'm gonna ask that you excuse any residual glitter that you, might see, that you um, might see on my face, cause I know it's still there. It was pointed out to me twice in the airport yesterday and you know, there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> Ariatna Goudreau, who runs a legal advocacy organization in Puerto Rico, had been on our Houston bus tour, and we were all eager to reconnect with her on the island.
0: Hi, uh, I'm Ariatna Goudreau. I am the founder and director of Ayuda Legal Puerto Rico, which is a local organization that works with movement lawyering initiatives around just recovery and the right to dignified housing. We were the first disaster legal aid initiative on the ground the day after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, and since then... We
2: have hurricane reached- Maria wrecked Puerto Rico just a few weeks after Harvey hit Houston. Maria was a major hurricane that caused close to 3,000 deaths on the island, and the recovery had been painfully slow. It's still going on as we record this in fall 2021.
3: Half of the adults in the U.S. don't know that Puerto Ricans are citizens. They've had U.S. citizenship since 1917, but it's a qualified, unequal form of citizenship. Puerto Ricans cannot even vote in U.S. presidential elections or even elect their own senators and representatives to Congress. At the same time, the U.S. imposed austerity measures and cut services, creating hardship and huge obstacles to disaster recovery.
2: I learned a lot about that reality from Ariadna and others at the conference. When does a disaster start?
0: And it's a very difficult question. I know it is for all of us. I'm thinking in the case of Puerto Rico, the backdrop of colonialism, the backdrop of austerity, sustained austerity for the past 16 years, the backdrop of human rights violations. And then Hurricane Maria came in, and the recovery process has been also a process of fighting for the right to stay on the land. If you need to move away from this place, you need to leave the island, to actually leave the homeland.
2: One of the people in our small network of housing justice advocates at the conference was Luis Gallardo. I was intrigued by what I heard him say about his involvement in the right to housing movement in Puerto Rico. We met in a park to continue our conversation.
5: Ever since I was a teenager, I would always wonder, how do we have people living on the street? The Maria situation only made it more intense because now you have folks who lost their house or they live in substandard housing worse than we'd ever imagined. They have nowhere to go. They have no title, they don't have access to FEMA assistance. The federal money is just not arriving. We saw abandoned schools that were occupied by families that created sort of communal settings where they would you know divide up the classrooms and that's where we'd stay for shelter. So we saw an explosion of that occur.
2: So Luis co-directs Centro para la Reconstrucción del Habitat. It transforms abandoned buildings into affordable housing. And yes, you heard him correctly. Many families are denied FEMA assistance. And that's because on the island, homeowners who inherit property are not required to have a deed to their homes. And FEMA requires that in order for homeowners to even get help.
3: In the aftermath of a disaster, Puerto Ricans would be hard-pressed to retroactively create deeds to homes that have been passed down generation to generation. So they get left out, again. Luis explained that disaster recovery on the island requires a lot of creativity.
5: We don't march into a community and say, hey, everybody, let's take over an abandoned building. Like, What building do you want to take out? We are approached or we find these samples of community-based action. And I think Puerto Rico is a great laboratory for that, especially considering the disasters it had and the lack of a local, state, or federal response. We had to find our own shelters, we had to find our own housing, we had to clear our own roads, and we had to create our own networks of services, food, water, and basic necessities.
3: Oscar Lopez Rivera, a renowned Puerto Rican activist and former political prisoner, told the story of San Sebastian, to illustrate how people took things into their own hands when the government didn't show up for them.
2: A big part of Hurricane Maria recovery was the worst electrical blackout in U.S. history that lasted several months.
4: In my hometown, the mayor, he brought all the retired workers from the electric company. And in two weeks, San Sebastian had electricity. One of the few places in Puerto Rico that had electricity And it was done by the workers.
3: The success in San Sebastian led to new laws in Puerto Rico that empower local governments during emergencies to restore critical
2: services on their own. There are examples like this all over the island of people taking care of each other. On a stormy day, we had the opportunity to see organizing in motion beyond the shiny conference venues and tourist maps. Ariadna and others encouraged us to visit the Caño Martín Pena, eight densely populated neighborhoods of San Juan surround this tidal channel. In the early 1900s, people built informal dwellings along the channel in the mangrove wetlands. As the city grew, the channel became clogged and polluted. Often, it overflows into the homes of these neighborhoods. Seven of us, including me, Zoe, and Koshana, squeezed into a van with our guides Maria Ivelisse Inerio and Mariolga Julia Pacheco.
6: So, there's no air conditioner in the <laughs> in the van, so we are so sorry for that because we have to close all the windows for the rain. But you're gonna see in, with your own eyes in this uh, tour what is the struggle of the communities when rains like it's raining today.
2: Through the steamy windows, we could see the streets filling with flood water. The modest homes and storefronts were bright blue and yellow, like the majestic ones we had seen in other areas. People were navigating past storm-damaged buildings and empty lots.
6: This is the Martin Peña Barbosa Bridge. This is one of the two bridges that connect one side of the community, the north and the south. Both sides of the of the district got, they get flooded. Also, it, it is a health issue because of the of the contamination. Like, so I'm from New Orleans, and one mm-hmm. of the same kinds of issues. Just mm-hmm. any sort of
2: rain, lots of water in the streets and floodings. Mm-hmm. Like, are you still dealing with the same infrastructure from like a hundred years ago, or has there been like recent upgrades or anything to the no, that's, systems? No, that's why
6: we are here because yeah. the community designed a uh, comprehensive plan to update and to uh, build for the first time a lot of infrastructure that we here don't have. We receive the water from all the communities around, but here don't have the infrastructure to deal with all the water that comes to, the, to this place. At the same time, What
2: we learned was quite amazing that more than 700 meetings and activities generated plans to revitalize the Caño neighborhoods. That's empowered people to lead and carry out these plans through three institutions, including a community land trust, or CLT. The land trust provides more than 2,000 families the legal right to live on the land where their homes stand and resettle those who live in flood-prone areas.
6: And as you can see, we have to relocate a lot of families. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the construction is occurring right now, the new houses. This particularly is for a person that lost their house in, in the hurricane.
3: Almost 1,000 people in the Caño Martín Pena neighborhood will be relocated to new homes. Their plan includes removing debris and pollution from the waterways and creating parks. People hope the channel will become a center for recreation and transportation in the city, instead of a dumping ground for San Juan's runoff and pollution. Uh, We're
6: gonna pass through this bridge. This is a historic bridge. It was constructed when we were a colony from Spain. We're now a colony from the U.S. Uh, you know, so it's just a change of colony, but it's colony, so it
2: was- The day after our visit to El Caño, the sun had finally come out. Zoe and I took a walk to a nearby park to share what we experienced. Driving through those narrow streets with little flood infrastructure was pretty nerve wracking, um, where the folks in the van were, you know, kind of you know, clutching their heart at some moments at times because it looks as if you know, they were diving in the water at some point. If the community here in um, Ontario didn't do it for themselves, um, would there even still be homes in that area? Home is really a place to belong and to build your sense of self and to
4: understand how you fit into it, all of these larger systems, into your family, into your neighborhood. But at, at its core, home is about who gets to belong, who gets to remain. So disaster recovery is when it destroys your home, when it destroys a neighborhood. How we recover is also about who gets to belong and who gets to survive this disaster and who gets to survive the next disaster and how they get to survive it.
2: It felt precious in Puerto Rico to build these relationships with our peers. We weren't trying to impress a funder or plead with the government agency. We could just reflect on what was common and what was unique in our own experiences in our cities. If we could build on that, how different things could be. Luis Gallardo shared our hope that we could continue to build on our collective knowledge and experiences.
5: We just hope these relationships are durable and they keep lasting and, you know, Five years from now, there might be another disaster in Texas, there might be another one in Louisiana, and we need to keep that network open. Fortunately, we have models that we could look back now and say, you know what, it didn't work in this or that situation, or it created more inequalities. So we need that community-based focus to make this work and count.
4: There was something that someone said the first day that we were here, resistance is really strong in Puerto Rico. I think it's really beautiful, da-da-da every beautiful story shouldn't have to be about resistance. Mm-hmm. And that really, really spoke to me because I think we find a lot of comfort in our organizing work in Houston. It's like how we help to make sense of disaster, right? And how we, we find a way through it. But like we also deserve the peace of mind and the comfort and the other types of beautiful stories that are out there that feel really far away when you're dealing with even a regular rain causing a flood, let alone a hurricane causing a flood.
2: All facts. It shouldn't be a luxury to just lead our lives, all of us, regardless of whether we have a lot of money. Zoe and I, and so many others, do our work because as a country, the U.S. just can't get it together. We aren't there yet even after a record number of pandemic deaths and major job losses that have pushed millions of people to the margins.
3: Even then, though, like Rochelle's colleague Erica said, there's never a time when you can't use your voice. We'll have more to say about what happens when people use their voices to resist, vote, and organize for better living conditions. On the final episode of But Next Time. We are your hosts, Chrishell Pelé and Rosa Arrieta. We produced this series with our senior producer, Leah Mahan, who edited this episode with story editor Cheryl Duvall. Fernando Arruda wrote the music and mixed the sound. Thanks to Liana Lopez for sound recording and Rosalia Valencia-Tau, our translator and
2: archival researcher. But next time it's part of the Rise Home Stories project. Made possible by a grant from the Ford Foundation's Cities and States Program. Jolu Productions and Working Films offered leadership and support. Executive Producer, Luisa Dantas. Supervising Producer, Paige Wood. Impact Producer, Anna Lee and Julia Steele-Allen. Associate Producer, Kati Diallo. Special thanks to Amy Kenyon, Jerry Maldonado and Lane Kaplan-Levinson.
3: To learn more about the Rise Home Stories project, please visit our site at risehomestories.com. For more about But Next Time, visit us at butnexttime.com.